go ahead and bow in prayer. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide, show us what you would want us to see through all of these verses. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we talked about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him to obey the commandments. And then he said, you know, I've done all those things. He says, one more thing you have, go and give all that you have and give it to the poor. So all you have and give it to the poor. And he went away poor, no, went away sad. So that's where we left off. And I want to give that in there because Paul, uh, Peter is going to speak to Jesus today, referring back to that story. So we're just reminding you, if you didn't, weren't here and wanted to hear it, it's on the, it's on the internet. <laughs> so uh, Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 28. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed you. And he said unto him, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in the present time and in the world to come at, at life everlasting. And then he took unto it the, the twelve and said unto him, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spit on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and on the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and his sayings were hid from them, neither knew they of the things which were spoken. So we're going to just look at these verses, you know, first, we're going to, because it's kind of, neither one of these messages are long enough to be by themselves, so I have to kind of combine two messages that are two different thought processes. But the first thing Peter said, you know, uh, Jesus, you told this rich young man he had to get rid of everything. Hey, look at us. <laughs> we have given everything to follow you. And this is kind of a true statement. What were they doing? For four years, they had given up their businesses their families for all practical purposes because they were following an itinerant pastor who wandered around all over the place to minister. And this is kind of an interesting thing because this is one of the dilemmas that everybody who goes and serves God has to deal with. How much, how do I balance a family life with the ministry that God has asked me to do? And, you know, in the past, you know, 100 years ago, even less, Pastors pretty much gave up everything to serve God. They left their families. Uh, if you were a circuit-riding pastor, you definitely did because you saw your family only a couple months a year because you, you got on your, on your horse and you did your long circuit. And that circuit sometimes would last four or five months at a time. And then you'd come back and stand, stay with your family for, for a short time and get back on your horse and go through the whole circuit all over again. And, you know, this is something, this is the way much of the south was reached it's the way much of the west was reached a circuit riding pastor would come along and you'd see the pastor once every once about every six you know three to six months and he would do weddings funerals uh baptisms and and preach to you for for a day or two and then he'd go to the next next town or farm depending on what his circuit circuit was and so they made big decisions to totally abandon their families in our day, we're being told, well, you can't abandon your family. That's a terrible thing. Well, I agree on one side that it is a terrible thing. But if you're serving God, you do what God has told you to do. And it's a hard balance. And Peter is telling them, 
you know, look at us. You know, we think about this. Peter's being pretty proud at this statement. You know, hey, we, we, did, we left everything. And in Peter's case, he'd left a business. John had left a business. Several of these guys had left that, that fishing business. Uh, and so they, they had literally turned away from what wealth they would have had and prestige they would have had because John's families the, uh, was the ones that uh, the Zebedee family sold fish all the way down to Jerusalem. He had a very thriving business going on, and John and his brother turned away from that strong business to follow Jesus and not have a home. And Jesus told people, you know, follow me. I don't, have, I don't even have a bed to stay. I don't have a place to lay my head. I'm, I'm going to lay down wherever I find a place to lay down. But Jesus said something very interesting to Paul, uh, to Peter, excuse me. He says, I tell you that no one has left house and parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in this world to come life everlasting. And one of the things that I have learned over the years is when you're a Christian, you have family everywhere. You have mothers, fathers, children all over the place. You can't go to a church, it's a godly church, without having family there. I've never done a lot of traveling, but I've done enough traveling. It's wonderful to go to a church and be treated great during those times, to be included in their potlucks, to be invited they find out that you're visiting and you're and you're away from your family i've had more families visit ask me to come to their house after sunday mornings and you know it's a wonderful experience to to do that when i grew up my dad was always inviting people that were visiting the church to come to our house we never knew how many people were going to be coming to coming home after church uh now when we were in guam we always had a house full because we 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 had a, a, a cb base where everybody where these guys were without families and they would be and they came to our church and they would be they'd go home with whoever was invited them from church to go home because they nice home cooked meal you know and you know this is an amazing thing that when you are a christian we are a family and there's going to be members of the family that you like a lot there's going to be members of the family that you don't like but we are a family and we need to be able to realize that we're a family and this is what jesus told peter he goes, you haven't given up anything. You're going to have more people in your family than you've ever experienced. You're going to have elders that are going to be like fathers and mothers to you. You're going to have brothers and sisters, and you're going to have all the kids that you're going to help disciple and raise. And, you know, for us, we need to be able to understand that. There's people that are going to be like mothers and fathers to you. There's going to be those that are going to be just siblings to you. And so this is where we're at. And this is what Jesus told the disciples. You guys haven't really given up anything. And, you know, we look at, when you read the Apostle Paul's letters, how many people did he say, this person took care of me when I was in, you know, Corinth. This person took care of me when I was in Galatia. Really treat them special because they went out of their way to give me a place to stay, to, to feed me, to provide for me so that I did not, so that I could minister to him. What was he saying? These people were basically being parents to him, taking care of him as a parent would any child. Uh, and so we need to be able to understand this is what Jesus is telling. And the rich young ruler, I mean, and we talked about him last week. His, what God was telling him is get rid of your God. Because you're telling me you're obeying all the, the, the commandments, but you have a God in your life. And, and then Peter's trying to be proud. Saying, look, we, we've done just what you told him to do. 
We need to be very careful of pride because pride can lead us into very bad decisions and very bad actions because God does not care for pride. Pride was Satan's downfall. He goes, I don't want to just be the chief angel. I want to be equal to God. And, that, and then that was his tr temptation to Eve. If you eat of the fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So pride can get us into so much trouble. And this is where Peter is at. And kind of, Jesus kind of gives him a gentle rebuke. Okay, yeah, I understand that you've given up what you think you have, but you've given up nothing. And it's a wonderful thing that you can go to a church and be in family. It's a wonderful thing when I start talking to other people how God coordinates messages across the country. Now, sometimes a message is very specific to a church. A church is in, in need of a specific message. But, you know, one of the things I've listened is I've listened to other pastors speak during the way. I, I talked to my son, and, and he'd go, what did you speak on? And I'd tell him what he spoke, and he'd go, my pastor said the same thing. And you talk to other people, my pastor said generally the same message. Maybe not the same scripture, but the same message is given out because the Holy Spirit coordinates and controls what's going on. And yes, I understand some bodies need different you know, messages that are really tailored to what's going on there. But it's an amazing thing how the Spirit is in control of the family. And then Jesus did something, he's going, because we're getting toward the end of the book of Luke, we're going to see Jesus going into the triumphant entry, and he says, we are going to Jerusalem, that all that has been prophesied will be fulfilled. Now, this is kind of interesting, because Jesus understood what he was saying when he said this. The disciples did not fully understand what this meant. Remember, we've talked about this. The disciples, when they were following Jesus, they were following the Messiah. The Jewish understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to come and establish a kingdom where the king was going to rule on Jerusalem, and everything was going to be in the center of Jerusalem, and they were going to be the mighty kingdom, and they were waiting for this. So the Jews, every time, the, excuse me, the disciples, every time Jesus spoke to them about dying, basically did not understand a word he said because it didn't compute. How many times do we listen to a message maybe that doesn't really match what we think and expect and we don't hear it? You know, and then you go back and you listen to a tape or a, well, I go back to tape days, but you listen back to a message on, on the internet or, or on an I, uh, iCast or, or whatever and you go, I don't remember that being said. <laughs> I don't remember that being said. Why? because it wasn't computing at the time. It is real easy for us to be able to hear the old Charlie Brown when the car cartoons, when the teacher spoke or any adult said, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and you're going, and, you, and it's kind of, that's what kids hear when, when parents speak more often. How many times do we do that to God? God speaks and all we hear is a bunch of noise. You know, and this is what the disciples were hearing when Jesus went through this section, because it says right at the end of it, they did not understand what he had said. We're going to go to Jerusalem that all that the prophets said would be complete. Jesus knew what that meant. And he even told them, I'm going to be killed. And he never turned away from, from that call. Uh, you know, when we think about this, I've just made a short list of things, and I'm just going to give them off to you. You can write down the, 
the, the scriptures on it. Um, he said that he was going to be delivered into the Gentiles to be mocked and spitefully entreated and spit on and that they would scourge him and that they would put him to death and he would rise again. If you want to find this written out in any one particular verse, all you've got to do is go to Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 very clearly talks about all this, but that's not the only place that talks about these things. Jesus said that his back would be uh, smitten in Isaiah 50, verse 6, that his, they would pierce his feet and his side in Psalm 22:16, that he would be that he would be his grave would be made with the wicked in Isaiah 53 9 and that he would experience resurrection in Isaiah 16 16 and these are just the things that he talked about all right and these are just one verse for each one there are lots more verses for each one of these there there are thousands of verses about the Messiah when, when we read the scriptures the idea of the prophecies of Jesus and a third of them already being fulfilled are so wonderful because God's prophecies were very specific. They weren't like, uh, if you get in and read a horoscope, which I do not recommend because that's getting into witchcraft and astrology and everything. But if you do read them, they are so general that if anything happened to you, they would have been fulfilled. Jesus's were very, very specific. He goes, my back is going to be spidden, uh, uh, smidden. He goes, I'm going to be born in Bethlehem. This was given in Micah 5 too. You know, out of all the towns in, in Israel, Bethlehem would have been the least likely to be chosen because it only had about three or 400 people in it the day that it was said that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And even when he was born in Bethlehem, it didn't have more than about 1,000 people in it compared to all the other towns around that, it, that you would have picked. That would have been like saying that he's going to be born in chloride. <laughs> okay, Out of all the cities in Arizona that you could pick... <laughs> saying, okay, we're going to pick one of the small, small cities that nobody has ever heard of and say this is where he's going to be born. Now, of course, people had heard about it because King David was born in Bethlehem, but it still was a very small, insignificant town for Jerusalem, and that the Messiah would come from such an insignificant place would have been an amazing thing, that he would be minister in Gal Galilee, now this comes from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, which talks about him ministering in, um, let's see, I'm going to look that up because I want to read that to you because it would be hard for you to understand that it's talking about Galilee. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as her vexation when the first of the light afflicted in the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali and after the, that did the more grievous affect her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and in Galilee of the nations. So Jesus was going to minister in Galilee. And again, when that was given, why would anybody go to Galilee? Isaiah is preaching the northern kingdom is going to fall away and be taken captive and he going, the Messiah is going to minister in Galilee. And where did Jesus do most of his ministering? He went to Galilee, Capernaum, that whole area, and would come down to Jerusalem, get in trouble, go back to Galilee, <laughs> and then come back to Jerusalem, get in trouble, go back to Galilee. The fourth time he comes down to Jerusalem, he gets arrested and killed. But he 
this was a prophecy, and he, Jesus is telling them, I've got to do everything that was prophesied. When he was born, it said that, he was gonna, that God would call his son out of Egypt. What happened? Herod was going to kill all the children, which was a prophecy, which I didn't write down, but that was also a prophecy that the children, that the, the women would cry for their children. And God took him into Egypt and then brought him back out of Egypt into, back into Israel. What an amazing thing. When you really start thinking about how accurate the Gospels are, or the, the prophecies are, and how they're fulfilled in the Gospels. And Jesus is telling the disciples, we've got to go to Jerusalem, that all of this can be fulfilled. And, you know, it's just very interesting. He says, uh, I'm going to be delivered unto the Gentiles. You know, and this has got to shock them because they're thinking, okay, we're following the Messiah. He's going to be king. And he's going to go, no, nope, I'm going to be delivered to the Gentiles, which Jaron tells specifically the Romans. The Romans had them conquered. So in their mind, they're going, okay, he's going to be delivered. And somehow he's going to do some great power and get away from this deliverance. Because this is their mindset. He's going to be the great conquering king. And then he goes, they're going to mock and spitefully entreat and spit on me. And we talked about this, and we'll talk about it in the future. But what happened to Jesus when he was arrested? They taunted him. They put a bag over his face and go, you're a prophet. And they started hitting him and saying, tell us who's hitting you. They spit on him. They, they mocked him. And they gave him, remember the greatest mocking was when they put a purple garment on him and put a reed in his hand and a crown of thorns and they bowed down in mocking worship of the king. Mocked. Now, Jesus knew all of this was going to happen and yet he went to Jerusalem for all of this to happen. This is exactly what he told the disciples. I'm going to do this and all this stuff is going to happen. How many of us would have gone to Jerusalem knowing that all this stuff was going to happen? We're going to go, oh, pain, suffering, people are going to tease me. I'm going the other way. Now, I, Jerusalem is that way. I'm going that way. Now, we would be Jonah. You want me to go where? Okay, I'm going to go exactly the opposite direction. We need to be very careful because even in, in Jeremiah's day, he finally told God, he goes, God, I am so tired of being beat and thrown into prison. I'm not going to talk for you anymore. And then his next sentence was, his word burned in my mouth and I could not but help speak. Have you ever been there where you've tried to know that God wants you to do something, say something, and you just could not help but do it? And you tried not to do it? <laughs> And it kept burning you and encouraging you and pushing you into doing it. Most of us who've served God have had that experience at least once, if not more than once. Now, there's been times when I had something on, on my mind that I had to say, and I'm going, God, I can't say it because I know who it's aimed at, and I can't say what's ne what, what you're telling me to say. And it would burn <laughs> and finally have to say it. <laughs> you know, so we need to understand that Sometimes it is not easy to serve God. God is going to put us in places that might cause pain, at least temporary pain, to do something that is not our personality. 
One of the things I'm finding out about many of the pastors that I'm getting to know is how many of us are introverts that don't like uh, people. So what does God do with us? He puts us in the pastorate <laughs> where we have to deal with people all the time. And I thought I was probably one of the few and I'm finding out that I'm kind of in the majority of pastors that have trouble dealing with people. And why? Because God wants it to be him that ministers. He needs to be the one that is getting the glory for it. And so Jesus is telling them, I have got to go. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be smitten. I'm going to be given to the Gentiles. He goes, they will scourge me. And we've talked off, every time I do the, the Lord's Supper, we talk about that scourging. Now, we think we understand scourging, but we really do not understand scourging. That scourging left them completely raw and usually dead. But Jesus did not die. You know, we, you know, when I went to see the, the movie, uh, The Passion of Christ, and everybody was griping and complaining about how violent and awful it was, I'm going, okay, did they really show a scourging? And I got there and I looked, I'm going, okay, it was, it wasn't, it was bad, but it was not a scourging. It did not depict scourging as bad as it was, and the people enjoyed it back then. They enjoyed watching people get abused. They enjoyed watching people get chopped to bits in the, in the Colosseum. They enjoyed watching these scourgings. You know, and it wasn't so long ago that people, if you announced that you were going to do a hanging, the entire town showed up to see the hanging. I don't know why anybody would want to see a hanging, but that's, you know, everybody would show up. And that was pretty clean compared to some of what was done in those days. But all through mankind's time, people have shown up to see these brutal exhibitions of, of torture. People would show up for these. These were done in public. So part of it was so people would not want to get, you know, get it done to them. But there were people who literally enjoyed watching it. The blood flying everywhere, the flesh flying everywhere, and this is what a scourging was. Jesus was scourged. He was in so much beaten state that he could not carry the cross to Calvary. He stumbled and fell because of how bad he had been beaten. And we, you know, we oftentimes forget about the cost of our salvation. Our salvation cost God so much. And, you know, I think about, you know, the angels were charged to protect him, and they're probably up in heaven. I can picture the angels up around the throne of God saying, Father, is it time to go rescue him? How are you letting these insignificant, you know, bags of flesh and blood and, and water do this to you? And the Father saying, nope, you stay where you are. Stay where you are. And how much it had to hurt the Father to see it happen as well. But knowing the cost of our salvation, he took all the punishment that we deserve upon himself. He's telling the disciples that this is coming. They're going to scourge me. They understood what that meant. And they're going to kill me. And at this point, they're kind of really shutting down. Kill you. Hold it. No, no. You're the Messiah. You're going to be the king of the, king of the, the world. And you're going to rule in, in Jerusalem. What, what are you talking about this death stuff for? This is where they really shut off. It was bad enough he's talking about being, being mocked and spit on and, and scourged, but now he starts talking about being killed. And they're going to go, 
does not compute. And then they miss completely, and I will raise up in three days. Do you realize that the disciples were amazed when Jesus rose in three days? They had locked themselves in their upper room because they were afraid that they were going to be the next ones being scourged and killed. They had, and they totally had not recognized them. This is only going to be the first time Jesus tells them this. Over and over again, Jesus says, I'm going to go die and I'm going to be coming back to life. And it still amazed them when he came back to life. It just totally amazed them. How many times are we amazed when God steps into our life and makes something good happen that seems bad? This is why I love Romans 8:28. for all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose because God works all things together for good. Not necessarily for my good, but he works everything together for good. And what have I seen over the 50 plus years that I've walked with God? He always works things to the good. Over and over, I've seen that in my life. But you know what? It's hard sometimes in the midst of that trial to realize that God is going to make things work together for good. We need to really grab hold of a verse like that. And when we're going through trials, say, God, don't understand it, don't, don't can't comprehend it, but I trust that you're going to make things work together for good. Believe me, I've been there many times where I'm going, God, don't understand how it can be for good, but I'm going to trust your word. And I've also shared, I've learned one very important lesson back when I was 20 or 30 years old. Don't quote that verse to somebody who's going through a hard time. Because if they don't believe it, in the, if they don't believe it going into the hard time, it's no comfort. I'm going to teach it before everybody goes into a hard time and then say, remember, you agreed that God works all things together for good. For me, it's a great comfort because I truly believe God's word and it's deeply memorized into my heart that God is going to work all things together for good. And I'm in the middle of it. I may go, God, I don't understand how it can happen, but I'm going to trust you. And that's what we need to do when we're in the middle of a trial that we do not understand how God's word applies to it. Trust that God is still true. Trust that he is absolutely giving you the truth. He says he gives us a table in the midst of our enemies in Psalm 23. Do you feel like you're going to be comfortable in the midst of your enemies? Usually we don't feel like it, but we should because God promised us he was going to give us, he was going to put us on a banqueting table in the midst of our enemies. They're all around us and he's going to give us a nice banquet. While we're in the middle of, a, of middle of a trial, if we'll just believe. If we will just believe his word. Why do I give us so many verses every month to memorize? Because I want us to understand God's word and start to believe his word. To trust him in spite of all that's going on. Now, we in America, we've been spoiled. We have not had to have persecution. We have not had to have trials very much. But there's coming a time very soon where we may have to face some heavy trials. We may face imprisonment for our beliefs. We may face death for our beliefs. And I believe we will, before the rapture, end up with some pretty heavy persecution. Are we ready for it? Have we memorized his word? Do we trust his word no matter what's happening to us? 
It's important. Many times in my life, it's only his word that has held me strong. Going, God, I don't understand why you're doing what's going on, but I'm just going to trust that you're still in control. I'm still going to trust that you're going to make something good out of this. I'm going to trust that you're, you have a plan. Even though I don't understand your plan, I'm going to trust that you have a plan. That makes it easier to go through. It doesn't make it easy to go through. It makes it easier to go through because he is still in charge. In spite of our whole life being turned upside down, and we've had plenty of, all of us have had times where God seems to have picked up our life, shook it around a little bit, and turned it upside, and put it down the wrong side up. And we're going, God, I don't understand anything of what you're doing. But if I can say, but, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you in spite of everything seeming to go wrong. So my encouragement for us is really learn Romans 8.28. Really believe it because when things go wrong by our sight, we need to go, God, you've got a plan. Because nothing really goes wrong in our life by God's plan. It may seem to us that everything has gone wrong. It may seem that all these bad things are happening to me. But God has a plan in it. We're going through the life of Job, and nobody's ever gone through what Job has gone through. Job, in the midst of it, is saying, God, I don't understand anything this, and I'm really having a hard time. He did not have the beginning of the book where God and Satan are having their debate on, let me let, go ahead and try him out. And he did not have the end of the book to see there God says he gave him back twice, twice more than everything that he lost. And he spends... 30-some chapters on grumbling and complaining about how bad things are between him and his friends. You know, because he did not know the beginning nor the end of it. We don't know the end. We really don't even know the beginning. What caused our problems? Did we cause our problems? Did, did, did Satan cause our problems? Is God letting a test come in just to see if we're going to be trusting him? And we definitely don't see the end. But we should trust in the one who already knows the end. God knows the beginning and the end before it even starts. I'm amazed, you know, when I think about that. God knows the beginning and the end. He created man knowing that man was going to sin. He created man knowing that man was going to sin and that Jesus was going to have to die for them. And he still created man. I, I look at that, I'm going, God, I don't understand that at all. He has promised us eternal life. And he knows beyond that. Because he has no beginning, he has no end, and he is outside of time, so he knows all of it. We need to learn to be able to trust God knows what's going to happen for us in spite of everything that's happening to us. And we're going, God, I don't understand how... You know, God, there's no way what's going on could be good. No way at all. And God can turn it to good. And the most important thing, and I've said this so many times, it's not necessarily for our good, though we will be rewarded in heaven for what he does. But how many times does God put us through the grinder so that somebody else can see us stay faithful to him? Was it worth it? I think so. 
in the office there, I've got a sign that says, what is the value of one soul? What would you be willing to go through if one soul could go to heaven? And I think that's important for us to understand. If God puts us through the ringer and one person ends up in heaven because we were put through the ringer, was it worth going through what you went through? I would say yes. Because the value of one soul. Jesus came to this world and died. And as many have said, he would have done it for one person to end up in heaven. Now, he gets millions, but he would have still done it for one. And for each person, it's one person at a time. And he said, this pain, this suffering is worth it. Are we ready, willing, and able to go through whatever God wants us to go through so that a soul can come to heaven? I think it's very important for us to look at this. The disciples did not understand what he was saying. He goes, it just went right over their head. Don't understand. Don't comprehend. I don't even think they heard until the Spirit reviewed it to them. It was one of those things that, you know, how many times does somebody say something and you don't really hear what they say? How many times did your kids not hear what you said? <coughs> no, let's put it that way. Uh, how many times when you were a kid did you not hear what your parents were trying to tell you? Now, they did not understand what was going on. They did not understand the words of Jesus. But I want to challenge us. Are we ready to suffer so that somebody else can grow and come to Christ? We need to put that into our heart. And when we're going through hard times saying, God, this, if it's not for me, it's for somebody else, Help me to stay faithful during this time. And I've had testimonies where, it's, where I've seen where, you know, I went through six months of gout one time on, on crutches, and I'm going, God, I'm in pain so bad that I can barely sleep, and why am I going through this? And then a year later, somebody said that they were encouraged by watching me serve God in such pain. I'm going, okay, God, thank you. Now I know. <laughs> now I know what it was about. God's not always going to show us the benefit while we're on this world. But there will be times when he'll show us the testimony of somebody just to encourage us. But the one thing we can hold on to, there's always a reason behind everything that comes our way. Because God has not gone to sleep. He has not gone on vacation. He knows exactly what's going on in our life and he's got a plan. So if you're going through a hard time if right now or in the future, just know that God has everything under control. And all things work together for good, eventually. In spite of this, this leads us to the fact that I can walk into a lion's den. I can walk into a fiery furnace because, God, you are in control. And I've always loved Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego's answer to Nebuchadnezzar when he says, who's going to deliver you from my hand? And their answer was, our God can deliver us, but whether he does or whether he does not, we will serve the Lord. Is that our answer toward God? Are we going to serve God no matter what? If he asks us to give up our life, are we ready to give up our life? We give up our life, what's, what's the hard part about it? We end up in heaven. Real terrible event. You know, I give up my life and I get to go, I get to, go to heaven. You know, for a Christian to die, it is not 
a bad thing, especially for them. Now, we might miss them. We might be a little sorrowful and everything, but they are in heaven. I could wish for nothing better for somebody than to end their life and be in heaven. You know, and I've told people, you know, when I was a teenager, I used to tell these guys, well, we're, we're going to kill you. I'm going to just make sure you do it right because I don't want to live. They go, what? I'm going, if you, if you hurt me, I have to get better again, and I have to go through it all over again. So make sure you do it right because I want to go to heaven. Do we fully, really believe that? Do we fully believe that when we die, we go to heaven? Do we fully believe that when a fellow Christian dies, that they've gone to heaven? I love the idea that this is a celebration when a Christian passes away. Because they've fulfilled their life and they get to be with the Father. They get to be with everybody else who's gone before such an important event that has happened where are we with our attitudes with God do we fully understand that we have a God who loves us enough to have his hand on all of our life and I know that's hard to understand because we're going God there are billions of people on this world how can you have a plan for every single person and God says, well, yeah, I, I had a plan for all the billions that are there, plus all the billions that have been here before, and any of the billions that might be here thereafter. He goes, I'm just big enough, smart enough, strong enough to have a plan for everybody. And it's an amazing thought, because oftentimes we forget that God has a plan for us, and that he understands us better than we understand ourselves. And sometimes what we go through is just to help us know that we don't know ourselves. You know, we'll say, God, I would never do such and such. And God says, okay, let's see. And we'll get a test and we'll find ourselves usually falling flat on our face because his test will be strong enough to make sure we fall flat on our face and say, without me, you can't stand. But we need to be able to say, God, I need your help. I need your strength. I want to stand no matter what. But I need you to help me stand. So... This is where we're at. The disciples did not understand this. And how many times do we not understand God? And we have the advantage of having the whole scriptures. They didn't have anything but the Old Testament and what Jesus taught them. We have the advantage of having the whole scripture, so we have no excuse, and yet we still don't understand most of what God does. Why? Because God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways, and they will always be so. No matter how close we get to God, his thoughts will always be greater than us. His power will always be greater than us. And the minute you try to put God in a box, he'll jump out of the box and show you that you can't put a box around him. He's too big to put a box around him. And I've heard many people, well, this is the way God does things. I'm going, I'm sorry for you. You're, you're going to really have some troubles. So we need to really start to understand God is God. He will do what he wants to do. And we need to understand that we are his completely to do with as he wants us to do. So, Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Lord, help us to learn to follow, to understand you. Help us to learn to trust you in more and greater ways. And that we will just turn our entire being and desires over to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.